This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. For those of you who have experienced my fill-in sermons in the past, you know that I generally go off on a tangent and do something completely different. The reason, of course, is so as not to suffer by comparison to those who are fully qualified for this role. Therefore, today, I'm not going to attempt any new deep insights into Scripture. Rather, I'm merely going to talk about my favorite novel, this slender volume by Leo Tolstoy entitled War and Peace. This is my first and only copy. I bought it back in 1974. You might see the binding has been lovingly restored with package sealing tape. Now, I didn't realize at the time that it was an almost new translation into contemporary English by Anne Dunnigan, first published only six years before. And I highly recommend this translation. Now, some folks say this book is just way too long to consider reading. But is it really? I mean, the King James Bible is about 780,000 words. And War and Peace is a mere 587,000, or less than 80% of the length. Okay, that's still pretty long. So why devote all those long hours to reading it? Well, on one level, it's a great story. I mean, it's filled with romance, intrigue, epic battles, duels, tragic deaths, jealous rivalries, a thwarted elopement, near-death encounters, and spiritual redemption. In other words, it's all very Russian. But what really makes war and peace, to my mind and that of many others the greatest single literary work in Western civilization is the way that this intricate and emotionally involving story is layered and interwoven with history, philosophy, psychology, and theology. Now, I admit I didn't just pick up this book at random and decide it's time to read it. Instead, I was first introduced to War and Peace when a 20-part BBC miniseries was broadcast on Masterpiece Theater in the early 1970s. Anthony Hopkins, certainly one of the great actors of our times, played the role of Pierre Bitsuhoff, who in many ways mirrors Tolstoy himself. The entire series is now available for viewing on YouTube. Tarita and I finished watching it just a few weeks ago, which prompted me to talk about it today. The slide images you'll see are from this miniseries. The story takes place between 1805 and 1813, at the time Napoleon's armies are sweeping across Europe. The historical background includes major battles that lead up to the occupation of Moscow by Napoleon's Grand Armée and the subsequent disastrous retreat. Three main families are involved in the storyline. The Bitsuhoff family is mainly Pierre. He is the illegitimate son of an exceedingly wealthy aristocrat. Yet, nevertheless, he inherits the bulk of his father's vast estates 
and thus becomes a most eligible bachelor. The Rostovs are a large family of landed gentry who are accepted in society but are known to be struggling with financial difficulties. The main story focuses on the elder son, Nikolai, and his younger sister, the enchanting and pixieish Natasha. The third family is the Bolkonskis, mainly Prince Andrei, who is a man of action, not given to deep reflection and hesitation, as is the case with his close friend, Pierre. Also figuring in the story are Andrei's deeply religious sister, Maria, and his eccentric and domineering father. Now, of course, there's no way that I can even recount the basic story outline without keeping us here well into mid-afternoon. So what I'm going to do is present five snippets, war and peace in pieces, if you will, that give insights into how Tolstoy's view of history and the human condition were shaped by his own wrestling with Christianity and his search for the essential meaning of the gospel message. Peace one. For this piece, we have a short video clip from the series. The image is quite fuzzy, but the sound is fine. Here, Pierre is essentially running away from his disintegrating life. His adulterous wife has left him. He has shot and seriously injured her lover in a duel, and his life has no meaning or direction. While on the run, stopping at a post house to change horses, he encounters a mysterious stranger a Freemason named Vazdeyev, who is plugged into the, the local gossip grapevine. I'm afraid my way of thinking in regard to the whole theory of the universe is so opposed to yours that we may not understand each other. Do you think your way may really be described as a way of thinking about the universe? Yes, I think so. Well, surely it is nothing more than a melancholy delusion. Yes, perhaps yours is also. Perhaps. But think, the whole truth, when we perceive it, is something we must feel inside us. When it is known, the feeling will be intense. Do you feel your way of thinking about the universe an intense perception? Yet you are a searcher after truth. And you say you have a way of thinking quite opposed to mine, and yet you do not feel it intensely. If it were the truth, do you not think you would? Well, one may feel a delusion as intensely as one may feel the truth. Yet it would be intensely felt. Yeah. Your way of thinking about the universe is no more intensely felt by you than your way of playing cards or your way of dressing. So, you have a way of life which you can put against mine and say it is equally valid. But examine your own life, my dear sir. How have you spent it? In debauchery, taking everything and giving nothing. You've inherited great wealth. What have you done for your fellow man? What have you done for your serfs? You've profited by their toil to lead a dissipated life. You married a young woman and gave her no guidance or help. Oh. A man offends you and you shoot him. And yet you are not happy. Where then is your way of thinking about the universe? Where does it come in? I don't know. What is the use of a way of thinking about the universe that excludes God? I cannot believe in God. You do not know him. That is why you are unhappy. He exists. 
But to understand him is hard. How can you know he exists? How can I ever know it when my mind denies it? It is not the mind that comprehends God. It is life that makes us understand. How is it then that human reason cannot attain this knowledge? The, the mind can know only what it suits the mind by its nature to know. The mind was never intended to be the gateway to this knowledge. Supreme wisdom is like the pure dew. Can you receive this pure dew into an unclean vessel and then judge of its purity? No. First, there must be inner purification of the vessel. Yes, that's true. I can see that. The intellectual knowledge of the world is divided into the science of physics, chemistry, history, and so on, because this is the way the mind must work. But supreme wisdom is one. The science of all. To receive this wisdom, one must first purify the inner vessel that is to take it. Piece two. Here we are at the Battle of Austerlitz in December of 1805. Prince Andrei, on the staff of the Russian General Kutuzov, has an important role in securing the Russian lines when he is wounded by a French artillery barrage. Tolstoy writes of his inner thoughts. What is it? Am I falling? My legs are giving way, he thought, and fell on his back. He opened his eyes, hoping to see how the struggle between the gunner and the Frenchman had ended. He wanted to know whether the red-haired artillerymen had been killed or not, and whether the cannons had been captured or saved. But he saw nothing. Above him there was nothing but the sky, the lofty heavens, not clear yet immeasurably lofty, gray clouds slowly drifting across them. How quiet, solemn, and serene. Not at all as it was when I was running, thought Prince Andre. Not like our running, shouting, fighting. Not like the gunner and the Frenchman with their distraught, infuriated faces struggling for the ramrod. How differently do those clouds float over the lofty, infinite heavens. How is it that I did not see the sky before? How happy I am to have discovered it at last. Yes, all is vanity, all is delusion, except those infinite heavens. There is nothing but that. And even that does not exist. There's nothing but stillness, peace. Thank God. I will note that Andre does not die from his injuries. Not this time. Peace 3. It's two years later, in 1807, and here the central figure is Nikolai Rostov. In this scene, he has gone to a field hospital in search of Denisov, uh, a young officer in his regiment who has been wounded. He describes the look and the overpowering stench of rooms where men are left to die most not from their wounds, but from raging typhus. 
In the long room, brightly lighted by the sun shining through the large windows, the sick and wounded lay in two rows with their heads to the wall. Most of them were unconscious and totally unaware of anyone in the room. The others raised themselves or lifted their thin yellow faces, all gazing intently at Rostov with the same expressions of hope for help, of reproach, and envy for another's health. Rostov walked to the middle of the room, glanced through the open doors into the two adjoining rooms, and saw the same thing there. He stood still, looking around in silence. He had never expected to see anything like this. Just before him, lying halfway across the passageway on the bare floor, was a sick man, probably a Cossack, judging by the way his hair was cut. The man lay on his back, his huge arms and legs outstretched. His face was a reddish-purple color. His eyes were rolled back in his head so that only the whites were visible. And the veins in his bare arms and legs, which were still red, stood out like cords. He was knocking the back of his head against the floor and hoarsely uttering one word over and over. Rostov listened intently, trying to understand what he was saying and finally made out the word he was repeating. It was, Drink! 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 Rostov looked around in search of someone who would put the sick man back in his place and give him some water. A few moments later, Rostov discovers a corpse among the sick that had been there for days and finally commands an orderly to remove it. Then, only two chapters later, Rostov finds himself in Tilsit for the signing of a short-lived peace treaty between Napoleon and Tsar Alexander. Here, the Russian and French officers are dressed up in their finery and celebrating together in a grand feast. Napoleon and Alexander exchange medals. For Rostov, The experience is discomforting and contradictory. Rostov stood at the corner for a long time, watching from a distance. In his mind, an agonizing process was going on from which he was unable to draw any conclusions. Terrible doubts arose in his soul. He recalled Denisov with his resignation, his changed expression. The thought of the hospital with all those amputated arms and legs, the filth and disease. And then he thought of the self-satisfied Bonaparte with his little white hand, who was now an emperor, liked and respected by Alexander. For what then were all those severed arms and legs, all those men killed? He found himself thinking such strange thoughts that it frightened him. Peace 4. Here we skip ahead five years. Pierre had joined the Freemasons, and for some time it not only gave him solace, but it turned him to philanthropy and freeing of the serfs on his estates. But though still technically married, his life is increasingly emptied of meaning. 
when Napoleon invades and occupies Moscow, the aristocracy flees to the surrounding countryside. But Pierre remains. He has convinced himself through numerology and an arcane interpretation of a passage from Revelation that he is the one who is destined to kill Napoleon and save Russia. Out on the streets of Moscow, much of which has been set afire by arsonists, Pierre rescues a young girl from a burning building. But when he returns to the girl, returns the girl to his mother, now being accosted by French soldiers, he is found to be carrying a knife. He is charged with being an arsonist and is imprisoned. The French then decide to deter future arsonists by executing suspects by firing squad. Pierre turned away to avoid seeing what was about to happen. A sudden crackle and roar was heard, which seemed to him louder than a thunderclap. And he looked around. There was smoke in the air, and the French soldiers with trembling hands and pale faces were doing something near the pit. Two more prisoners were led up. With the same mute appeal for protection in their eyes, they too gazed in vain at the onlookers, patently unable to believe what was coming. They could not believe it because they alone knew what life meant to them, and consequently neither understood nor believed that it could be taken from them. Again, Pierre tried not to look and turned away. Again, the sound as if a terrific explosion struck his ears. And at the same moment, he saw smoke, blood, and the pale, scared faces of the Frenchmen once more doing something at the stake, their trembling hands hampering one another. Pierre, breathing heavily, looked about as if asking, what, what does this mean? The same question was reflected in every eye that met his. The prisoner in line right in front of Pierre was executed. And then the French officer announced the lesson had been concluded and those remaining were led back to their makeshift prison. Peace 5. Tolstoy makes this brush with death a turning point for Pierre. When led back to his place of imprisonment, symbolically perhaps, in a shed outside an abandoned church, he is emptied. Writes Tolstoy, It was as if the mainspring of his soul, on which everything depended and which made everything seem alive, had collapsed. Into a sheet, into a heap of meaningless rubbish. It's at this point of emptying that Platon, that he meets Platon Karataev. Platon is a peasant farmer who, is com- who had committed a minor theft to feed his family and escaped punishment by being drafted into the army. He was captured by the French after the Battle of Borodino. Platon is a simple, sturdy soul a man of implacable faith who lives for the moment and always tries to see the best in it and the best in everybody he encounters. Within a few days, the emptiness inside Pierre starts to refill. 
Tolstoy writes. Sounds of screaming and shouting were heard somewhere in the distance, and the glare of the fire was visible through the cracks in the shed. But inside it was dark and quiet. Pierre did not sleep for a long time, but lay with wide open eyes, listening to the rhythmic snoring of Platon. Pierre felt that the world that had been shattered was beginning to rise again in his soul, but with a new beauty and on new, unshakable foundations. As the long Russian winter wears on, the French forces are cut off by guerrilla raids and are increasingly weakened by the cold and malnutrition. In early 1813, Napoleon calls for a retreat, removing his army back to the west, but taking prisoners along for the trek. One night, on the forced march through the bitter cold, huddled around a fire with Pierre, Platon tells an old folk tale in his rough-hewn style about a merchant who was wrongly accused of murder and who is imprisoned and tortured. Finally, he is sent a pardon by the Tsar. But the pardon arrives the day after the merchant dies. After Platon concludes his tale, Tolstoy adds, It was not the story itself, but its hidden meaning, the rapturous joy that lit up Karataev's face as he told it, and the mystic significance of that joy, which now dimly permeated and rejoiced Pierre's soul. That night, the frostbite on Karataev's feet worsens. He is unable to walk the next morning, and all stragglers were summarily shot by the French guards. Shortly after this scene, Tolstoy devotes a short chapter to editorializing on what he regards as the false greatness of Napoleon and all those like him. This concept of great men of history is flawed, Tolstoy asserts, because this greatness appears to exclude standards of right and wrong. For the great man, nothing is wrong writes Tolstoy, there is no atrocity for which a great man can be accounted guilty. And he concludes with this. And it never occurs to anyone that to admit a greatness that is not commensurate with the standard of right and wrong is merely to admit one's own nothingness and immeasurable puniness. For us, with the standard of good and evil given us by Christ, there is no greatness where there is not simplicity, goodness, and truth. Simplicity, goodness, and truth. That's what the sophisticated and wealthy Pierre learned from Platon. And yes, it did lead him to a happy ending but you'll have to find the details on your own. <laughs> if you want to watch the videos, you can find them on YouTube by using this search. And that, in closing, brings us to our reading from the Gospel. 
The Sermon on the Mount was the heart of Tolstoy's personal faith, as well as his philosophy of history. It was the foundation of what he saw as a new prescription for curing the ills of society, and it was the key to ending the madness of war. What would it be like if we took the gospel message seriously, if we practiced it not just among friends and family, but among nations and cultures? From these verses, Tolstoy constructed a new philosophy of nonviolent resistance. He wrote about this extensively in his later years, and one of his admirers was a young Indian lawyer then living in South Africa, named Mohandas Gandhi. Their correspondence became the basis of a new approach for social change that would transform both India and South Africa in the century to come. Finally, as a footnote, I should note that Tolstoy's personal vision of Christianity was controversial in his day. He had little use or patience for a formal priesthood, and some of his writings even questioned the divinity of Jesus. For that heresy, he was excommunicated from the Russian Orthodox Church. But I expect he would fit in just fine as a contemporary United Methodist. (laughs) Easily, he could be the conservative wing of the Universal Unitarian Universalist. So that's War and Peace in a few pieces. If, If you haven't done so already, I hope that someday you will find the time to treat yourself to the whole, not just the one layer of the miniseries, but the full richness and depth of this wonderful, not-as-long-as-the-Bible book. I'm sure you will find it worthwhile. Amen. And uh, let's take a few moments for reflection.